BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with five good things. A new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. You're listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I think it's a really important behavior for people to realize is that it's okay to fail. It comes out of Silicon Valley. I mean, fail fast, get smarter quick. We don't want to be a traditional player in this space. We want to be the provocateur. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome back to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. On each episode, we explore the interaction of the two keys to successful marketing and business, the analytics, the math, the data, and the creative, and the magical ideas created to respond to identified needs or opportunities. Today, we have someone in the middle of the transformation of the advertising and media business to reflect the possibilities and full potential unleashed by technology. He's a pioneer of digital advertising and sits atop Group M at WPP, the world's largest advertising and marketing holding company. He's Christian Jewell, the global CEO of Group M. Christian was born in Guam, a military family kid who moved a lot from New Hampshire to California. He wanted to be a pilot, but his dad told him he was too tall. As a young man, he had a great curiosity that opened the world to him. He was a digital pioneer who survived the dot-com bust and emerged as a senior leader of Razorfish, including its time as a part of Microsoft and then Publicis. He went on to be the global CEO for Essence before his current mission. He's been in small and entrepreneurial, and he's been at the largest and has unique perspectives as a result. He's known for being a keen strategist, a transformation expert, and a strong culture builder. He mountain bikes, plays golf, skis, and is still tall. Christian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bob. Before we get started, I'd like to give everybody a quick view of you in 60 seconds. Ready? Ready. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Early riser or night owl? Early riser. The wire or the crown? The wire. T-shirt or tie? T-shirt. Hiking or fishing? Hiking to a good fishing spot. Michigan or Alaska? Alaska. Trombone or trumpet? Trumpet. Work-life balance or work-life integration? Work-life balance. Favorite band? Lately, I've been listening to Billy Strings. 
If you weren't working in marketing, what would you be doing? Teaching. Childhood hero? My dad. Favorite brand from your childhood? Alexander Kalur's made these great sweaters and I thought they were so cool. <laughs> Never had one. Pretty expensive back in the day. Marketing campaign you're most proud of? I love the Nike work that we did. Guilty pleasure? Pringles. Ideal Sunday afternoon? Walking the dog with my son. First concert? Paul Simon, Rhythm of the Saints. My mother took me. Ooh, first job? Washing dishes at Pasta Fresca outside Sacramento, California. Okay, last one. If you could time travel, would you go back to the past or go to the future? Future. Let's get started. Way back in 1981, we launched MTV, one of the first cable-only networks. And at that time, Nielsen just measured viewing of broadcast TV. You can imagine the advertiser's reaction. Great idea. Come back to me when you got some numbers. But a couple of folks saw this as an opportunity to get a jump on competitors. Roger Enrico was running Pepsi at the time and was hell-bent on moving his share against Coke. He saw all these young people watching MTV, so in the absence of any ratings, he buys us. Coke, on the other hand, said, we have no interest until you have measurement. And Coke sat on the sidelines for over five years. In that time, Roger moved the market share of Pepsi against Coke, the most it's ever been moved, before or after. In this example, Pepsi picked performance, even though it's harder to quantify. Coke chose measurement. In the next decade, when we took the internet to the mass market, I was at AOL at the time in the 1990s, and as a reminder, over half the traffic of the internet in the U.S. came through AOL in those days, and we did have the data metrics and performance, yet the major agencies at that time ignored digital advertising. Even though AOL had gone from a few million dollars in advertising to billions of dollars in that five-year period, 80% of the ad revenue did not come through agencies. This lack of adoption really opened the door for all those digital-only agencies that sprung up. You were a part of that and later had to be acquired at much bigger prices when it became obvious how huge the digital tam was becoming. So two decades later, and two examples of dislocation in a time of change, and here we are in 2022. You're now not the new guard. You are the establishment. You're the global CEO of Group M with over 50 billion in billings, 35,000 employees worldwide, and you're evolving Group M to continue to be a major leader. So here's the question. How are you evolving the business, the structure, and the culture to take advantage of your unique data and enormous scale? And how do you avoid the pitfalls, like the ones I just mentioned, to make uncomfortable change acceptable to your organization? You know, you talk about the early days of people taking risks without actually understanding full metrics or measurement or the things that today we would take for granted in terms of putting a media deal together. I think there's always an element in advertising and marketing about, you know, early movers and those who are willing to take a chance and the reward that can pay off with that. In the early days of the internet, there were a lot of failures. You know, and I lived through a lot of it. I mean, I started in the internet in 1999, a company called US Web, and tragically bought my first house on my first commission check, I think, in 2001, roughly five days before the company filed for bankruptcy as March 1st, which was a rather trying moment for myself. When you look at that, it's not even just going back to 2001. If you look at even more recently, Meg Whitman and Jeff Katzenberg doing Quibi and the amount of money they're able to raise and then the subsequent decline of that business. So you're always in this place where you're trying to make the right decisions about which media partners to work with and which sort of creative outlets are going to bring the most connection between brands and consumers. And I think there's never a perfect formula for it. 
Relative to how I'm structuring Group M, you talk about structure and culture. And let's take culture first, actually, because I think that's one of the biggest things. Coming out of Microsoft and Publicis and going into Run Essence, which at the time was about 300 people, mostly in the UK, founder-led organization, really shaped my view on culture and the power of culture as a true economic differentiator for a business. Up till then, people talk about culture, they put mission or vision on the walls and you see them around your office and you're like, okay, great. But the very first management meeting I had with the three founders of Essence, we rented out a little room at Soho Lofts in New York and I was all ready for the, for the job. I started as a US CEO only. So I you know, built these plans and growth targets and key accounts and management team structures and what we were gonna do and technology implementations. And I walk into this room and they're already there. And there are four chairs facing each other with no table in between, no screens, a little coffee bar. And Matt Isaacs, who was the CEO at the time, says, have a seat. And before he can even really say anything, okay, I'm ready to show you guys what I think the North American plan should be. And he goes, no, 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 we've got three hours just to talk about how you're doing, what we think this thing might look like and feel like over time. I don't know if you've ever done that really, just sit there with no table in a square with four people that you don't really know that well, while <laughs> you're trying to impress them about your knowledge of the business or what have you. But it's extremely uncomfortable. There's no barriers and there's no preconceived notion. And we sat there and sort of hashed out an understanding of what Essence was and how we wanted to treat each other as a management team and how we wanted that to show up in our people. And I sum it up now and I, I brought it to Group M as well. It's assuming positive intent at every turn. And I want everybody at Group M to feel like this is a place where their expression is welcome, where creative ideas are welcome, where they can disagree with management, where they can speak up, and where they're trusted and where it's an environment of positive intent. When you took over, you flew something like over 200,000 miles to meet people all across Group M. Were you doing those kinds of meetings like you did with the founders of Essence, where you just sat and talked as opposed to show me your presentation? Yeah, I had an odd entrance point into Group M, right? I, we sold Essence into it. So I was a earnout CEO. So I was sort of a witness to the management team for three years. When I took over the job about three years ago now, one of the first things I did was just get the management teams together. And I said, we're going to do things differently. We're going to trust each other. We're going to listen to each other. We're going to build a strategy together. And we're going to share that strategy with all 35,000 employees so that they know what the purpose of Group M is, what the purpose of the agencies are, how we can count on our technology division. Up until that point, Group M was a collection of companies. And so trying to sit down and talk about the future of this industry and media is becoming technology driven. It looks more like software than it looks like manual planning and in media deals. And we're going to get really good at automation and, and understanding our technology. And that means investing hundreds of millions of dollars and doing it once, not doing it in 60 different methods with different partners in every market around the world. And getting people aligned to that type of thinking requires a singularity of culture and, and understanding of how we're going to hold each other to account. In 2020, 2021, even during the lockdown, you hosted a video series called The Regroup. What was that tool for in this cultural transformation? It was a way to stay connected and a way to bring forward a lot of diverse voices from around the world with us. And I was talking to people in Pakistan and in India and in Europe and across the U.S. and to remind people of who's on the other end of the phone or the team's call in this case. We really wanted to go wide and deep into the organization. We wanted to hear employee stories. We wanted to hear about the client work they were excited about. 
Between the reaction to that and your 200,000 miles of traveling and the listening tour, what revelations came out of it that you probably wouldn't have gotten had you not done those? I'd say the amount of strength in some of our markets around the world, the amount of relationships with you know the publisher side and the client side. You know, when you go to a market like India, we're close to 50% market share. It's just a massive market with incredible strength from Group M and WPP there. And it's just really, really impressive to see the kind of clients that they work with and the programs they're able to put in place. And then when you go to other markets where we're still growing and learning, you know, it's just incredibly diverse business. You know, I think now we're almost 42,000 employees in 82 different countries. I mean, it's just continues to grow and the strength, even at that scale, is really, really impressive. You talked about some elements of corporate culture here in your values, positive intent, trust, listen to each other, accountability. What else is important to you in that value system that builds up the corporate culture? Risk-taking. I think that you know, we really have to be willing to change ourselves and to realize that the way we've been doing things is not the way that we'll be successful doing things going forward. And the migration into digital, the migration into programmatic, I mean, I really rapidly accelerated our investment in programmatic channels, pushing out of home into digital formats, looking at what we're doing, connected television, new partnerships like the Netflix-Microsoft partnership. How do we embrace those in a way that we're not scared of holding on to things in the past that we were really successful with, but realizing you know, we'll find ways to be successful in these new markets and our clients count on us to lead them into these new opportunities. And I think it's a really important behavior for people to realize is that it's okay to fail. You know, and it comes out of Silicon Valley. I mean, fail fast, get smarter quick. We don't want to be a traditional player in this space. We want to be the provocateur. I suspect coming into your job, you found that probably the appetite for that risk-taking and the fear of failure probably was at another level than you needed. How did you change that? How did you get people comfortable with that? Well, it's really important. And the key thing that I did was I did that tour around the world and we formed something called our, our synergy strategy, which was really just defining Group M as a global organization, the accountabilities between management, agencies, and ambition to build a large global shared services and media delivery organization. And we're making great progress on it. I mean, it's showing up in our new business wins. It's showing up in client satisfaction scores. And the other piece, and I would just give a credit to Mark Reed in this, you know, he asked me to take over Group M three and a half years ago. I mean, I never saw it coming. And I literally said, you would not want me to do what I want to do to Group M as the CEO. I just said, I, I, I can't imagine what I want to do with something that's attractive to you. I write a whole new blueprint. And I sketch it out for him on a piece of paper and he goes, go do it. You have my complete and total authority to do everything you need to do to make those changes. I think that's what Group M needs to do also. More on math and magic right after this quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Christian Jewell. I want to go back in time just a little bit to get some more context on you. You were born in the early 70s, grew up moving around as a kid in the 80s and 90s. Can you paint the picture of those times and your life then? My family's from Michigan. We're sort of Midwestern cultures and values type family. My mom's a school teacher. My dad joined the military out of Vietnam and chose the Air Force. You know, his first station was in Guam, and, you know, I don't remember much about it, but from there we moved to New Hampshire and kind of spent some time there. And I remember a pretty traditional family. You know, my dad was kind of home by five, and my mom's a teacher and be home, and we'd have dinner together, an older sister and a younger brother, and we moved to Alaska. You know, Alaska was great. We were outside a lot. We had a camper trailer, and we spent almost all summer out at the river fishing and hiking and picking blueberries. And we had a family card game called Cutthroat, which is sort of a lot like gin. And we'd all play that. And pretty simple and very, very nice. And then we moved out to California. Talk a little bit about that moving. How did all this moving affect you? Yeah, it's only in recent years I've actually come to think about that, to tell you the truth. I've seen my own son grow up, and I've seen the friendships that he's developed and how close they are. You know, I kind of realized... The challenges the moving around so much bring. And when I look back and I see some people now that I'm close with who have friendships from kindergarten or beyond, and I'm jealous of that. It looks amazing to be able to have that. And I think that's something you don't get, you know, when you're in a family that moves every four years. And, you know, relationships are something that are probably the most important thing in your life. And to be able to maintain and sustain those, it's something I've worked a lot harder at in the last 15 years of my life than I did before. What kind of kid were you? How did you define yourself and what was your own self-image? I don't think I had any kind of awareness to try and define myself. I think I was trying to get from point A to point B most of the time in my, my childhood. You know, part of the challenge of moving out of different schools and being different, you know, moving to California from Alaska. I remember kids walking up to me and saying, you know, do you live in an igloo? You know, you're very, very different. And I think, you know, struggling with being different was a real thing. And then, you know, my parents believed a lot in classical music and I had to pick a traditional instrument and then ended up in the jazz band. And I assure you, being in the marching band in California, wearing a button coat and top hat and leading the band out onto the football field was no cooler then than it is today, probably. I was in honors classes and academic and 
you know, probably a very awkward teenager, which is amazing now. I see my son in the same age group. He just joined high school this year, and he plays guitar and is in this rock band program where they get to play two hours a day with some amazing musicians and teachers. And his first day of school, I was 10 times more scared for him than he was. And I'm realizing he has so many more tools than I had at the time. And, you know, ultimately, it's just loving high school. It's wonderful to see him have a slightly different experience than I had. That's amazing. I heard a story about you as an early entrepreneur. I heard that you had one business where you picked up reptiles and sold them to kids at school. Yeah, I've always been a bit of a salesperson. I like having a little bit of money in my pocket. We lived outside of Sacramento in a suburb called Fair Oaks, and there was, a, at the time, a vacant field between us and the school. And I'd always see lizards all over the place on the way, on the way to school, and so I started catching them. I'd throw them in a little shoebox and then sell them at school until I got in trouble for selling lizards at school, and then I had to stop that. In which case, at that point, I think Costco had just started coming out, and I talked my dad into buying those 100 packs of Tootsie Pops, and I started breaking down 100 packs and selling Tootsie Pops at school next. So it's kind of a catch-me-if-you-can situation with the administration of the school. What lessons from that child do you still use today? I think the importance of family. I think the importance of sitting down together. My dad actually started a computer technology company the late 90s and we started his own company never got it before even in the air force he retired after 26 or 27 years there the courage it took him to start his own company it's still something i you know respect deeply but the transition from family sitting down having dinner every night to my dad working until midnight or 1 a.m it was profound and thinking about you know my own life now and i'm traveling so much for work and how i try to stay connected to my son and my family you know as my parents get older and how you prioritize those types of things so that you can be there for each other. And you can get really tied up in work or making money or promotion or even just great ideas, but ultimately coming back to the family and relationships and making sure that you know, if that's not strong, nothing else in your life is going to be strong. You took a gap year between high school and college. You went on to UC San Diego. You decided you did not want to be a doctor. You did not want to be a lawyer. Was there any guiding light that, uh, that made college exciting for you? I grew up a lot in college. When I got to college, I really just realized I liked learning a lot. I liked economics, I liked political science, I liked aspects of biology and science. Just really became very comfortable with myself. And I think, you know, that allowed me to start thinking about things that, you know, I hadn't really been exposed to before. I mean, my dad being in the military, my mom's school teacher, I didn't have a lot of exposure to the business world and what was happening and, you know, certainly the looming opportunities of the internet and technology and what that was bringing. And to meet professors who talk about those types of things and how corporations were structured. And, you know, it's just really an amazing time in my life. After school, you went to Japan, taught English. What lessons did you pick up from that that, uh, that are still with you today? Empathy. <laughs> I mean, I applied to the Japanese English teaching program, which is the JEP program is what they call it. Pretty competitive program that the Japanese government puts out and you can go over for a year or two years on a fully paid you know, program where they put you up in housing and they kind of seed these English teachers all through the country of Japan to really just teach, in my case, little middle school kids. I ended up up in the north, a place called Yonazawa, which was about 100,000 people. I was one of three English speakers in the town. I lived in one of the thatch roof places. It was incredibly difficult to get around. The amount of kindness that I was shown and the amount of people that would, as I was lost, not just point me in a direction, but walk me there. I think about it when I see tourists all the time now, whether it's you know, anywhere I'm at in the world, but you know, New York or, or San Francisco, 
you know, that just that little bit of extra trying to help somebody feel like you're looking out for them and that you, know, you care and that you want them to have a good experience when they're in your country. Doing math and magic, I talk to a lot of people, and there's always something in the research that goes, wow, that's unexpected. And the unexpected in your case was you began your career at GE Capital. And knowing you and thinking about you at GE Capital seems so out of place. Tell us how you wound up there and what that was in terms of the stage of your career building. Yeah, so I came back, my dad at the time, like I said, he started a computer networking company. And they sold in a lot of computers and technology to corporations and offices and things like that. He knew someone at Compaq. They introduced me to the general manager in San Francisco. I was sleeping on my college roommate's floor trying to figure out what kind of job I was going to get when I came back. They had a group called GE Capital IT Solutions, and they were a big computer and services reseller. And so I went in and got a job there as customer service, and I rode the Jig Church down every morning at 6 a.m. in a suit and tie and got to know the technology side of the business. And then after about a year, they launched a big services group. And the services group sort of was the first thing that was accountable of anything remotely, you know, to internet. And that's when things were just starting. It's one of those weird things that happened, but Levi Strauss and company went into a review to outsource all their services when they were going through their restructuring. And I got to know the guy there, and GE had just launched the service, and, you know, we're probably not particularly prepared to take on anything of Levi's size. And I sold this account for 3,600 seats across the United States and started working out of Levi's for the next two years. And, you know, at the time then, I really started falling in love with coding and the internet. Then a company called US Web, somebody from the company went over there and said, come over and look at these guys. And I, I mean, I couldn't believe it, Bob. I walked in like, there's free coffee, there's free food. These guys are giving away Harley Davidson's during their Christmas party. Like what is happening here that I'm not a part of? And I went over there as a strategy account lead and that kind of kicked off the next 15 years of my career. You survived the dot-com bust. You went through various iterations of the company until it became Razorfish and was eventually acquired by Publicis. What surprised you most about how digital advertising evolved? I mean, you were there really at is practically the beginning. How did the reality contrast with your early view? I mean, it's not all from Silicon Valley. Just the boom and the bust stories are, I mean, they continue to repeat. When you see how things can get so big so quick and then get so small so quick. I mean, I'll never forget one of the iterations of, of the name was March 1st after US Web, which was kind of the biggest internet consultancy at the time. Bob Bernard's the CEO. I remember as we were going through it, I think Francisco Partners had just put in $150 million to keep the company afloat. I saw Bob in the hallway and I said, hey, Bob, I you know, just bought this house. Like, should I be concerned? It's like, everybody else seems to be concerned. And he goes, don't worry, Christian. Ships this big don't go down. We'll never forget that quote. And two days later, we filed for bankruptcy and people's paychecks started bouncing. There were people who were having babies. And it turns out that Bob had stopped paying the premiums on our health insurance. So they were getting... You know, bills handed to them for twenty plus thousand dollars, thinking they had insurance when they in fact didn't have insurance. The cycles that we've gone through are just really tremendous, and the uncertainty that you deal with in some of those moments are something you have to get really comfortable with. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say I remember we used to take our paychecks and we'd go to one of those check cashing places to see if we could get them cashed to see if we could get paid during those time periods. I think if you fast forward in today's workplace, you know it's evolved so much. I think. The role of government has changed so much 
sadly for the worst, I think people have really started to look at their companies as one of the most stable things in their lives. And the responsibilities that come with that when we think about equality and opportunity, the way we treat each other and the way we think about values and the way we hold each other accountable and hold our executives accountable. And I contrast that to when I started when I really was just hoping my paycheck would cash. And it's a whole different world right now. I'm going to jump into it a little bit. Let's start with the first one, which is the dot-com bust, the beginning of the century, the big recession of 08, 09. You lived through both of them, the pandemic, business downturn in 2020. And now we are in a period of some uncertainty. How do the learnings from those three help us navigate this? And what do you see as a result of that? I still believe my primary job is to provide employment for our people and a sense of safety and security so that they can make plans you know, for their lives. With that in mind, I think that what we have to do is make sure that we plan for the uncertainty. No one knows what's really coming. I don't know if China's going to open back up next year. We have to make sure that we're listening to our clients and we provide them the flexibility that they need. And ultimately, you know, I have to predict the future just slightly better than everybody else so that I can do the right things for our employees and our clients. We'll say every one of those downturns, you don't realize when you're coming out of it. It gets better much more slowly than it gets worse. And I think that one day you wake up and you realize, well, actually everything's okay. You rise up out of challenging times, kind of inch by inch. I don't find it ever happens overnight. And I think just making sure that, you know, you invest in the things during these time periods that are really important to you. Maybe you postpone a couple of things that are nice to have and you communicate. You know, they've been very upfront with our employees about, hey, we need to be really careful right now. It's not the time to make big bets. Let's stay close to our clients. Let's make sure we understand what's happening. You know, let's forecast a little more often than we used to. And really try to make sure we know what's coming. You were a strong advocate of diversity. How do you make it a priority and make inclusion a part of your culture and operations? And what are the hurdles to making all of ours, not just your company, our senior management ranks in American business reflect the diversity of the communities we serve? Well, we can never do enough. The simple truth is you have to believe in diversity. You know, it's not a target or goal. You know, the best leaders that are building really diverse and inclusive teams are those that understand diversity and inclusion is good for you. And diversity comes from a lot of different formats. I mean, people who come from different backgrounds, who weren't born on Madison Avenue, whose parents didn't work in the industry, those are interesting people to bring into the business. People are experiencing the way marketing and advertising works around the world right now. And you bring them in, you put them in leadership positions, and you start having different conversations. Let's talk about the media for a minute. You probably are the biggest supporter of media with your ad dollars, and it's changed enormously. We've seen the biggest TV network today has dropped below 40% reach for the month. I'm in the audio sector. Here we are on a podcast. The death of peace and quiet, meaning people are filling up all those open spots now with audio, radio, playlist, podcasting are exploding. But that has shifted the mix. I mean, when I got into business, TV was the big reach medium. Radio was second. And newspapers and magazines have big reach. How do you change your outlook on media? You know, you were there when people thought digital meant nothing. And now here it's number one in terms of media choices. How do you change those allocations? How do you get people to constantly watch and move things? One of the things I'm most excited about running Group M is that, you know, we are the biggest. And, you know, when I looked at sort of what that meant, I didn't want Group M just to be known as big. Big's not always good as we know. So 
you know, when I looked at that, I thought, well, the largest opportunity about our size is to actually force the industry to take responsibility and actually be better than we are. And we came out with a mission statement about making advertising work better for people around the world. And I think that is the opportunity for media right now. I think we can make it less intrusive. I think we can be more respectful in how we run personalization. I think we have to really look at ethical use of data. We have to look at the platforms we invest in. And ultimately, when you talk about shifting dollars, you know, I think it's up to us to represent the real cost of media to our clients. It's not just a reach and frequency equation, right? And you got to look at what is the management's commitment to DE&I? What is their commitment to responsible journalism? And how do we score all of these types of things in a way that we can tell a client, okay, this is what you know, you've stated you care about these things, then this is the real score. It's, you know, they're priced at a 12, but they actually cost 16, right? Or on the flip side, hey, here's a company that deeply cares about these types of things, and they're charging a little more for that, but you're getting something that really represents who your company values are, and now you can kind of walk the walk. And so in terms of shifting dynamics, whether it's digital or mobile or audio, I mean, obviously we're talking on a podcast today, there's always new formats coming and going. And it's up to us to help our clients kind of guide that, that complicated ecosystem. And I think ultimately, you know, we've shown a willingness to move dollars away from those that won't take responsibility for their actions in the world. And to reward independent journalism or other partners when they do step up and take that responsibility. If you could go back in time and give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? I listened to your Ben Horowitz podcast. I think my advice is somewhat similar. I wish I worried less. I'm so worried about everything. I do feel like worrying about all the small things along the way has overly taxed me in some capacity. And the things have a way of working out and the, you know, maintaining positivity, continuing to learn, continuing to be curious, and putting yourself around interesting people and opportunities. It's a good formula for things to kind of they take care of themselves, but good things generally happen. How do you deal with that in your work today? How do you encourage people to be aware, but not to let it get into worry? Or do you think worry is a positive attribute for them? I think an aspect of worrying is good. I mean, healthy paranoia. Competitors would love to have our clients. And most of the time, irrational. Sometimes you're irrational. And you know, what does that look like and how do we defend our, our business and how do we make sure our clients are growing and feel appreciated? That's always a, a fear. You know, I think reminding people about what we've come through in the last three years and the strength and the resilience in the business and in our global leadership and the relationships we have with clients and foundations and technology and our incredible partnerships and media. And I trust that we'll all come together again to figure things out when the next tough time gets to us. We end each episode by giving a shout out to our influences. This podcast is about both sides, about those who see the world with numbers, analytics, and data, the math side, and about those who have the magic, the creativity, intuition, showmanship. As you think about it, who gets the shout out for the math side and who gets the shout out for the magic side? Well, I start by saying I believe the two are intrinsically intertwined. Any great artist has a good basis in math. And if you look at great musicians, as you know, are generally pretty good at math. But in terms of the two, you know, Andrew Shabir, who was one of the founders of Essence, is one of the, the sharpest minds that I've ever met. He's gone on and is fighting climate change at a, at a company called Counteract now, where they're looking at carbon removal and investing in small companies there. But Andrew was the one who sort of taught me when we'd come up with a problem. Let's see if software could do it first. 
let's see if we can automate something first. Let's build something first. And just an incredibly brilliant guy. I have every confidence in the world that he'll be making a positive change on our climate in the coming years. In terms of the creatives, I have to give a shout out to Lorraine Tuhill at Google for many, many reasons, but not the least of which is she's been a steadfast supporter of, of me and Essence and our growth with them as their primary marketing partner over the years, but also someone who always makes time for creativity, always talks about the bigger ideas, always pushes for getting out of the optimization loop that can just drive you into micro conversations. And is always reminding me about, you know, hey, we want to be famous, we want to be good, we want to push for better things in the world, and lives it and talks it and delivers it. I continue to believe they'll push for, for positive impact in the world, and I think that Lorraine is a great voice for that and does it in a very creative, elegant, and amazing way. You've been a pioneer in digital advertising and marketing. You're a proven CEO who can navigate and even harness change and now are evolving a company and, I would argue, even an industry at enormous scale. Christian, thanks for sharing your valuable lessons and insights today. Thank you for having me. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Christian. One, take risk. As Christian says, you don't want to be the status quo, you want to be the change maker. Even if the path feels uncertain, keep pushing to create something new. Two, trust in positive intent. Set high standards and no matter what happens, assume that your team wants to do their best. This assumption builds trust among colleagues and strengthens corporate culture. Three. Plan for uncertainty. Christian survived the dot-com bust and came out the other side as a stronger leader. He's realized that uncertainty is inevitable, so it's important to pay attention to the world around you and lean into your strengths during challenges. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Our editors are Derek Clements and Emily Marinoff. Our producer, Morgan Lavoie. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 